0: Well, I want to invite you to join me in John chapter 21. We are nearing our uh, the conclusion of our journey through John's gospel account, and we're going to spend the next two weeks in John chapter 21. This morning will be focused on verses 1 through 14. Now, as we prepare to turn there, let me... Talk to the kids for just a minute, okay? So, kids, let me have your attention. I want you to listen as we're reading the text and as I'm preaching, because this passage tells us something about how you can enjoy Jesus. Now, let me give you a hint, okay? It has something to do with breakfast, all right? want you to think about that i want you to listen and i want you to ask yourself what you're learning about jesus here does that make you want to know him a little bit more okay think about that and you can talk to your parents about it over lunch deal all right now as we get ready to read this passage would you bow with me let's ask the lord's blessing father what a sweet picture we find in this passage of of Jesus. And I pray that that you would bring this picture into color for us, that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us today. Do this by the power of your Spirit and in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. A disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, "It is the Lord." When Peter, when Simon Peter, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, but they were not far from the land, but about. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed, or was revealed, to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. It's been a a really sweet, fun week. They've gotten the opportunity to just sort of drop it down into low gear and do a slow roll through these 14 verses. They have given such an encouraging glimpse to me of Jesus in this passage, but I'll be honest with you, it has been also a bit of a challenging glimpse. Somewhat of a confession. I wonder if the same might be true for you, as well. I have always read through John chapter 21 and, and sort of found the meat of the text in the back half of this chapter. And what comes next? I would brush past this text thinking that it was all meant to just set up where we will go next week. I thought to myself, maybe you thought to yourself, Jesus, what's the point? Makes me wonder, do we have room in our busy life to simply sit and enjoy Jesus? Do we have time in our schedule for breakfast with Jesus? Or is that not productive enough for us? Are there enough theological nuggets in this text to make it worth our while for resting for some time here in these verses is it going to make me better at well you fill in the blank (laughs) i've asked some version or variety of those questions over the course of the week and it's made me wonder if those questions are revealing a hole in my theology perhaps They're drawing out a deep longing. Jesus meets me in those questions, and He meets you there as well as He reveals Himself. Verse 1 opens up Jesus revealed Himself in this way. This revealing that we find in the text is more than Jesus popping out from around the corner so that we can get a visual sighting, another sneak peek of Jesus after the resurrection so that we know that he's alive. There's more than that going on here. This revealing is, is his manifesting himself. To manifest is to, is to show his fullness. It's to manifest his glory. Now you've heard me say throughout our time in John that Jesus' glory is shown most clearly in John's gospel account on the cross through his self-sacrifice for our sin. And that is still true. But, but though his work of redemption was complete, was finished on the cross, uttered out with his powerful words, it is finished his work of revealing Himself, the fullness of His glory, was, was not finished there. and We see it here in this passage, a passage that is rich with, with detail, though that detail is often subtle, and all of it, every bit of it, points to Jesus and His glory. I want us to see his glory as Jesus reveals himself in this text. And I want us to look at it in three ways. To see him revealing himself through the memories. Through the miraculous catch and through the meal. First, the memories. Did any of this sound familiar to you as I read this passage? So much of it is vaguely Familiar, And it most certainly would have been vaguely familiar to the disciples as they were experiencing it in, in real time. It was another account of, of a miraculous catch. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we find it in Luke chapter 5. There, the disciples had also fished all night. And had caught nothing. They brought their boat ashore. Jesus uh, asked to borrow it for a minute. They they pushed out a bit and he spoke. He taught from that boat. But after the teaching, he encouraged the disciples to to put out into the deeper water. to, To let their nets out again. They caught a big catch that day. We read this text in John chapter 21 and remember the disciples must have experienced it and felt the, the waves of memory washing over them. And I believe that is the point. That Jesus was orchestrating all of this because shared memories just bring us closer together. What do old friends do? they tell old stories. Anna and I are uh, part of a group that gets together to tailgate before football games and we do that with old college friends and each week when we're together with those old college friends, we tell the same old stories. My old roommate is there and I can't tell you how many times we've together shared the story with one another about that day many years ago when we just simply climbed a tree (laughs) climbed up in that tree and spent a couple of hours looking out and and talking why don't we tell that story again it's only for the two of us but the more we share that story the more it draws us deeper cementing the bonds of our friendship i believe jesus is I believe He is intentionally orchestrating these memories to draw His friends into deeper relationship. But He's doing more than just bringing these memories back, telling old stories. Jesus is also here redeeming the ministry uh, of the memories. He's brought them all together so that they can experience these memories now on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection. We see it with the fishing, but we also see it with something as simple as the charcoal fire. There's two mentions in Scripture of a charcoal fire. The last one was in John 18:18. It was the night that Jesus was arrested. And there, by that charcoal fire, Peter was warming himself, but also... In the glow of that charcoal fire, Peter denied his Lord three times. You know, charcoal fire has a distinct smell. Smells draw out memories for us. We associate the smells with the memories. Peter would have gotten to the shore that day with with the charcoal fire, and the smell would have likely brought back memories, but the memories it would have brought back to Peter were the memories of his failure, of his sin. And so do you see the kindness in Jesus of taking that memory and intentionally redeeming it, adding new meaning to that scene, to that experience, all of this is revealing something of Jesus. Something that is deep and true and that you and I need to hear. Because if those memories reveal something of Jesus, I believe they reveal His desire for relational connection with his beloved, well, the miraculous catch also reveals something. It reveals his abundant power and, and goodness. This time, with this catch, Jesus didn't tell the disciples to, to let out into deeper water. He, he yelled from the, from the seashore, hey, put your nets out on the right side. Now, these men, they had fished all night. They had caught nothing, and it would have been understandable if they would yelled back, "No, thank you. I'm done." But perhaps, in the instruction, some of those memories started coming back over them, and they might have wondered, "What if they put their net out on the right side. They could not pull the catch into the boat dragging that net with them alongside of the boat to the shore they they hauled it in and they counted the fish 153 now why is that little detail here in the text well some level it adds a, a measure of authenticity to the passage we heard about that as we look to the resurrection account those those details are the authentic eyewitness account that we have in scripture but but i think there's also more than that there's more than authenticity there's joy have you ever caught a big fish what did you do when you caught that big fish i had a debate with henrietta this morning she went fishing yesterday and she was trying to tell me how big her fish was and i was comparing my big fish i caught a big fish one time brought it in didn't have a tape measure so i put it up against my knee It touched the ground. And I did that so I could tell you that today. (laughs) We want to know how big a fish is because we want to relate the story. And we smile when we tell it. The disciples were in awe of this catch. And they wanted to count each and every one of them so that they could tell the tale. And what better way to tell a fish story? than to write it into the canon of Scripture for all people of all time to hear about it. Jesus is the one providing it. You have to imagine him smiling off to the side as they're counting the fish. It's joy and abundance. It reveals something of Jesus. And yet some of us hear this and we want to make it a prescriptive principle. Jesus provided an abundant catch for them. He, therefore, will always provide abundance for me, preferably in terms of goods. And yet, we forget that these same disciples would later go on to suffer. Many of them would go on to be martyred for their faith. cannot make this abundance a prescriptive principle, but we do see it as a window into the heart of Jesus. Others of us are not tempted to make this a prescriptive principle. We're tempted to forget it. We're tempted to lose this side of Jesus. And when we do, we lose something deep of the joy we are to find in him. I believe he's sustaining the disciples in this seen preparing them for what's to come and he's doing it with joyous abundance reminding them and us that this abundance comes in union with him remember they'd fished all night and they caught nothing they went out on their own to fish apart from christ they and we can do nothing Jesus is drawing that lesson out for them, but do you hear and see that in this provision of abundance, there doesn't seem to be a rebuke? There's not this look and an expression of frustration in Jesus as he's drawing out for them that they can do nothing apart from him, but rather a joy in his drawing them near. You and I, we, we can do nothing apart from him. From Christ. And so he joyfully draws us near with his abundance. It's what he's showing us, I believe, revealing of himself in this miraculous catch. and And then there's this meal. I told you I've enjoyed being able to slow down over this text over the course of this week. It's quickly becoming one of my favorites in all of Scripture. And verse 12 just captures that. In verse 12, we see the words of Jesus as he simply says, Come and have breakfast. Isn't that great? Jesus, the Savior, speaks to his disciples and says, Come and have breakfast. Now, kids, I told you that this passage tells us something about how we can enjoy Jesus. Let me ask you. Your parents or your grandparents ever ever cook breakfast for you, your favorite breakfast, maybe pancakes and bacon. Or maybe that's just my favorite. What are they saying when they cook that for you and they say, "Hey, come and come and eat?" They're saying this: They're saying, "I enjoy cooking this for you. And I want to serve you. But also, I want to enjoy this meal with you. That's what your parents and grandparents are saying when they ask you to come and sit and enjoy. And So how awesome is it that Jesus is saying the same thing? He cooked this meal for his disciples and he said, come and eat breakfast. Listen, Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. This is the same Jesus that John, the author of this gospel account, would later, when he is writing his experience in the book of Revelations, he saw Jesus in glory, and when he saw them him there, fear came over him, and he hit the ground in worship. This is the same Jesus. Have you ever... Taken a moment to consider that this same Jesus enjoys being with you. That this same Jesus invites <laughs> us to breakfast. Everything in this scene is meant to reveal the inviting heart of Jesus. Everything, did you hear how he called out to the disciples, children? He's not being condescending to them. Think in terms of, hey, boys, come. There's familiarity. There's intimacy. There's connection. And it draws you in all of it, every bit of it. And so with all of that in mind, we come to the back half of verse 12. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Does that sound a little odd to you? They've seen Jesus. This is not the first time they have seen Jesus. They're sitting beside him and they have to say, no one dared ask him, who are you? Well, they would have known, obviously, right? They would have seen him. But something was different. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Something was different now, post-resurrection, about Jesus. Maybe it was his body. It was a redemption resurrected redeemed body maybe it was just the fact that they were still in shock that this man whom they had seen crucified and buried was now alive yet he was the same he was the same and so what was it that allowed them to just know was it his appearance maybe his heart the heart that they are seeing and experiencing in all of these ways. As he manifested himself to them, manifesting his glory relationally through the memories, the catch, the meal. They knew. And so we see Peter's response. A response that that I pray informs our response. Look, to an extent... John chapter 21, I believe, can be considered sort of an epilogue to to this gospel account. It's it's an add-on to the end where John has given to us an account of the restoration of Peter. Is is John telling us, hey, this this was what happened after the resurrection as Jesus sort of tied up all the loose ends? It opens back in Galilee. That's where Jesus told the disciples, I'll meet you. They've gone back up to Galilee, up to the north. The Sea of Tiberias is also the Sea of Galilee. And there, in their old stomping ground, Peter went back fishing. Why did he do that? I've asked myself that question for years. I've I've gone back and forth on it. and, And different Bible scholars go back and forth on it as well was was peter simply was he giving up on ministry i used to think so but i I don't anymore but something's going on in this going back fishing maybe he needed some cash fishing was his occupation and he was providing for himself and his family maybe though he was still haunted by the reminder of his sin he wondered about his qualification for ministry and just needed something familiar whatever it was gotta see this Jesus pursued him he pursued him as Peter was wondering about all of that stuff and he went back to the familiar you remember last week at the end of John chapter 20 we saw that Jesus pursued the doubter Here, Jesus pursues the denier. That's what he does. Jesus pursues the struggler. Jesus pursues the sinner. Jesus pursues us. And Peter seemed to get it. Peter seemed to know that Jesus was coming for him. They were out in the boat, and John was the one who recognized Jesus first. makes you wonder if John was always the one having to tell Peter what was going on. Peter hears it. He hears it and he couldn't wait. His ex tells us he puts on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself out of the boat. Seems a little backward to me. Puts his clothes on before he gets in. Sometimes, you know, men, we take our shirt off when we're working in the hot Maybe Peter had done that. He, was, he had taken off his shirt to do his work, but now he sees Jesus. And now he's going to see his Lord. He prepares himself. And then he just throws himself in. He flings himself in the water. The text doesn't say he jumped in. The text doesn't say he dove in. He flung himself into the water i replay this scene in my mind and have a smile on my face because in peter's action you see joy and urgency all mixed into one i think of times when i've been at the lake and i couldn't wait to get in the water i didn't jump in i just kind of threw myself out that's peter he can't wait to be with jesus and there in that moment he is not worried about appearances He doesn't worry about what the disciples are thinking. He's not worried about the fish. He sees Jesus, and he's got to get to him as fast as he can. Now imagine the disciples dragging this net along beside them with just this chuckle. Oh, there's Peter. Peter didn't care. And for all the smiles that they probably had and all the smiles that we have, there is a profound theological realization that must have been washing over Peter and must wash over us today. Remember, this is not the first time that Jesus had coached the disciples into a miraculous catch. We talked about it. Luke chapter 5, it was early in Jesus' ministry, and there in Luke chapter 5, they caught so many fish that it nearly sunk the boat. And there in Luke 5, Peter saw all of that, and he was overcome with the reality of the great chasm that existed between the holiness of Jesus and his own sin. Peter saw this miracle in Luke chapter 5, and he said, Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But here, in John 21, rather than begging Jesus to leave, Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to him. What's different between Luke 5 and John 21? Peter's still aware of his sinfulness, probably more so than ever remember the last time Peter was with Jesus that night of his arrest. He was denying him. Peter knew the reality of his sin. And Peter also knows now the reality of Jesus' holiness more so than ever. He's seen Jesus risen from the grave. Here is what is different now. Here is what Peter now knows that he did not know then. He knows Jesus' holiness and his love. He knows Jesus' holiness and his grace. And with that combination, rather than running away from Jesus, he swims to him as fast as he can. So what is our response to this picture of Jesus as he reveals himself to us in this text? What is our response to a Savior who invites his beloved to come and have breakfast? Enjoy him. Enjoy this Jesus. And that enjoying it's a combination of a conscious decision that we make and the natural outworking of. The person of Jesus that we have seen. As he becomes real to us. I want to close by making a connection to draw this out for us. Of of how Jesus um, becomes real to us. And the outworking of that is our enjoyment of him. Last week a a friend of mine gave me, uh, shared with me a talk that. That author and, and teacher Dane Ortland gave about Jonathan Edwards and Jonathan Edwards' focus on the tranquil heart. Edwards lived with a deep and abiding calmness that he attributed to his relationship with Jesus. And so Ortland referenced Edwards in defining the basis for that calm heart, and he, and he defined it this way. It's a settled, inner, unflappable repose of soul beyond the reach of circumstance because God has become real to you. Not just true on paper, He's become real to you. He's he's moved from black and white to full color, from subscribed truth to experiential reality. Job experienced this movement and he captured it in Job 42 5 when he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job saw the power and majesty of God. And in seeing the power and majesty of God, the God who was always true became real to him. Repeater picture of the love of God. It's the picture of the love of Jesus. As Jesus reveals himself to Peter and to us in this text, do you see him? Do you see him as he is? Do you see his power and do you see his love? He's revealing something deep and true of his personhood, of his love, and of his invitation to us. Again, Jesus is always true. But when we see him in this way, he becomes a transforming reality in our lives. He becomes experientially real. This real Jesus says to his beloved, come and have breakfast. Come and be with me. How are we to respond to this Jesus? by enjoying forever. Let us pray. Mm. Almighty God, Father, Son, Spirit, you are beyond our comprehension, and that is good. Because our comprehension would never create a being so holy, And so loving. Reveal yourself to us, to our small minds. Meet us in our questions and draw us nearer to you. Be real to us. We pray for your glory and our good.